your story doesn't have to end. As an organ donor, the good in you can live on. In fact, you can save up to eight lives through organ donation. You may have seen the videos on TV or on YouTube encouraging you to sign up to be an organ donor. Sign up to give the gift of life after you're gone. You'll be happy you did. Just maybe, someone else will too. We've all heard that donating organs is vital for restoring the health of patients who would otherwise die from cancer and other diseases. Take this story described by C.T. Fletcher on the Joe Rogan Experience. I, I, I know that the, it, the heart was flown in. Mm. And I actually, you know, my, my wife video. How crazy is that? It's something They else, took man. a heart out of someone's body and they put it on ice and ice. flew it to you. And we actually, she has video of the ice chest, uh, you know, Jeez. me going into the room and then the ice chest <clears throat> uh, come following right afterwards. God, that's so crazy. It is crazy. It's, I mean, it's when I was a kid, uh, it would be like Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. Just in the United States, close to 114,000 people are waiting for a transplant. And 20 people die every single day because there aren't enough organs. And it seems our modern healthcare system, which has extended our lifespan, is partly to blame. There's actually a major health crisis today in terms of the shortage of organs. The fact is that we're living longer. Medicine has done a much better job making us live longer. And the problem is, as we age, our organs tend to fail more. And so currently, there are not enough organs to go around. In fact, in the last 10 years, the number of patients requiring an organ has doubled, while in the same time, the actual number of transplants has barely gone up. So this is now a public health crisis. That was Anthony Atala speaking at TED in 2011. And there are many other technologists out there, like Anthony, hoping to change the dynamics of organ transplants taking what, in many instances, has always required the ultimate sacrifice and working towards a goal where those organs can be created, in fact printed, in a lab. So we're trying to understand the anatomy that we see in the body and the underlying premise is that if we can recreate that architecture and put the cells in the right place, get the right blood vessel structure and lymphatics and other things we see in the organs, we can make that structure correctly, then it will have the same function. That's our underlying hypothesis. This is Jordan Miller. He's an assistant professor of bioengineering at Rice University, and his team has created a 3D printed structure which mimics the function of the blood vessels, which are vital for the operation of an organ like a lung. So when you're thinking about the idea of printing new organs, You not only need to create the physical structure out of the cells from the patient, but you need to figure out how to actually get the blood flowing through the organ so it behaves exactly like the real thing. And building those vascular networks is one of the most complex barriers to the creation of custom replacement organs. We already know a lot about the major biochemically active cell types that are found in the body and the supporting cells that are required to help them function. So in the liver, we have the hepatocytes. These cells have more than 500 functions in the body biochemically. We're still learning about them as as a field. But um, we know that putting 
live hepatocytes back into an organ will be required for us to make replacement tissues. So we don't know how to make a plastic or a metal device that can recapitulate all of those functions of the liver. Uh, things like metabolizing alcohol or aspirin, uh, that really is a biochemical process that cells do best. And so we need to think about how to use the cells, put them in the right physical context, give them uh, the pathways and highways for nutrient and oxygen delivery and removal of their metabolic waste. And if we can do that, then the theory is that we will totally recapitulate the organ function and would make in the future a stable replacement organ for a person that could also theoretically be made from their own cells. Jordan says there's a number of complexities in trying to recreate the 3D architecture of an organ. And so the team breaks this challenge up into a number of components. First, they look at the actual creation of the tissue itself, that is, being able to grow the tissue from human cells. And then they also look at the matrix structure of the organ, which is used to teach the cells where to grow. They then need to create a design file, which is just as complex as the human organ. That means they require a 3D map of all the pathways needed for the vascular system to work. And then that system will allow the blood to move through the organ and waste to also be removed. It's a little bit akin to designing a city. So when you think about designing a city for people to live, you have to have a balance between the living spaces where the residents are and the transport conduits or the roads that will allow for the delivery of nutrients and removal of waste. And if you have an efficiently designed city, then you have a good amount of traffic and not too much clogged traffic and, and not too large uh, an expanse of area where residents are where they can't access the roads very easily. So in our body, uh, our residents are the cells and the roads or the conduits. These are uh, the blood vessel architectures that we find in the body. And we really have to think about this not in terms of a relatively smooth topography like uh, the surface that we, we live on on the earth, but we have to think about this in three-dimensional volume that can encompass hundreds of billions of cells that make up the human organs. To try and solve the complexity of the 3D structure, Jordan and his team partnered with Nervous System, a design studio which works on the edge of science, art and technology. The company usually designs physical products, like dresses and clothing made from 3D printed parts. But in this case, Jordan wanted them to take that 3D knowledge that they had and apply it to the area of bioprinting. Uh, this really is related to this concept of the the difficulty in getting blueprints that mimic living tissue. So how do we even get a design file that can mimic the architectures that we see in the body? There's really a lack of design tools, software tools, that can mimic the architectures we find in the body. And Nervous System is an incredible design firm that uh, was founded by Jessica Rosencrantz and Jesse Lewis Rosenberg. And what they have designed is a lot of algorithms and software that are inspired by nature. So people have mapped out a lot of the structures found in trees that are conserved in, in human organs and, and other types of these branching architectures as one of the 
class of blueprints that they have been able to uh, design in, in their work. And we found that this is really a good mimic of a lot of the structures we wanted to make inside of the body. So uh, we contacted them to see about adapting their nature-inspired algorithms and software to put it back towards actually designing living tissue for work with human cells. It's interesting that you're bringing in like a design lab into this this research process, which usually is kind of like this closed system and it's just researchers in fairly similar fields working on something together. Did that sort of like open open your mind to different ways of being able to get those blueprints that you're looking for? Uh, that's exactly right. I think that the link between science and art is often overlooked. And I think that's to the detriment of society. I think there's a really interesting link between science and art where we're all trying to understand and uh, replicate and communicate things that we see around us and, and make our own versions of them. So in addition to that link between science and art, um, Jessica and Jesse in particular have quite technical backgrounds that they've applied into this design space. So they have degrees in, in biology and architecture and math from MIT. And that really underlies a lot of their ability to adapt these scientific uh, algorithms that they read about in papers and then write software that can mimic those algorithms and develop their own architecture from that type of an idea. And we'll continue looking at the moves to create 3D printed organs right after this break. In 1984, Charles Hull invented the first 3D printer. And in 2003, Thomas Boland created a 3D printer that could print gels, single cells, and groups of cells. And from then on, the developments have been exponential. Much like a regular 3D printer, a bioprinter takes a design file and then gradually builds layers of materials that eventually become the desired object, or organ. But unlike in regular 3D printing, which uses plastics or food, a bioprinter uses either human cells or materials that can be used to grow human cells. Depending on what's needed, the cells may come from a specific organ, like heart cells, kidney cells, and so forth. Researchers, hospitals, and companies have been bioprinting all kinds of stuff. Skin, bone, kidneys, bladders, and even vocal cords. However, most of these are not what you would consider a replacement organ. Usually, they are just small components of the overall system that are used to make repairs. And they lack the complexity of the real thing. And it's the complexity in the vascular networks that is the real challenge to making this technology commonplace. And Jordan's team is making great strides in this space. Taking the design files from Nervous System, the team created a new method of 3D bioprinting, which they called Slate. 
So as we approach the idea of making living tissue replacements made from human cells and that can have the architecture that can deliver nutrients and oxygen to them, remove waste products, we have to think about the types of technologies that could do this fabrication. So our lab and other labs are very interested in 3D printing as an avenue towards generating living tissues. But as you may know, 3D printing, it's been around for almost 40 years now. It was developed in the early 1980s, and it was really developed for making plastic parts. It wasn't developed with the concept of making living human tissue. And so what we've been trying to do is adapt those very advanced additive fabrication systems and use them in a biological context. So we have to add new design constraints onto 3D printing. Those are the design constraints in which cells can live. So these are usually going to be water-based environments and the materials we're going to be fabricating are going to be fairly soft. Uh, things like the consistency of gelatin, that uh, allow cells to survive. They're, again, more than uh, about 80% water. And so uh, among the class of 3D printing techniques that people have adapted for this printing with live cells or bioprinting, as we call it, uh, one of the more common ways is extrusion printing. This is using a syringe on a 3D printer that you load with uh, a material that cells can live in and the live cells themselves. You can extrude that out as a liquid material, then it will solidify and then trap the cells there. Um, one of the challenges with extrusion 3D printing is it's fairly slow because you have to address every position on a plane one position at a time. So this is the idea of uh, raster scanning across a surface. So we've been very interested in a different type of 3D printing called stereolithography, which is using uh, localized photopolymerization to build structure. So photopolymerization is a chemical reaction where you have a light sensitive liquid that when you shine the right color of light, in this case blue light, at the right intensity, it will locally cause a chemical reaction to solidify that liquid, uh, in this case into a solid gel. That gel is again more than 80% water. Using Slate, the team was then able to create a very small replica of what could be a section of human lung. They published a video of the technology, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And in the video, you can clearly see an air sac moving, and then the vascular network around it pumping blood. And Jordan was very clear that this is a long way from being able to fully recreate an organ, as these networks need to be miniaturized to the scale of what you would usually see in the body. So with this newfound ability to make complex vascular architecture in hydrogels, we were really thinking about what are the types of architectures that we could now make that we weren't allowed to imagine before, just because we couldn't, we didn't have the technology to make more complicated architectures than maybe single vessel networks. That is what the majority of our field is, is working on. But if you look at the structure of the human organs, in particular the solid organs or the so-called solid organs, uh, things like uh, the lung and the kidney and the liver, uh, we think of solid organs is actually a, a bit of a misnomer the solid organs are not completely solid. Almost half of their volume is typically going to be a fluid, and that could be a liquid, as in the case of blood, or a lymph, or bile. 
Uh, and it could also be air. Air is a fluid and it has this complicated architecture in the lung. So we realized we could make what we're calling multivascular architecture. This is something that is a characteristic of a lot of our solid organs, but we have not been able to approximate that experimentally in the lab until now. So this is the idea where you think about the lung, we have the airway architecture and we have the blood vessel architecture. They're both occupying the same organ. The entire function of the lung is based on the proximity of the blood vessel to the airway. You want to get them very close together, but they can never touch. And if they ever fluidically connect, you would get blood in your airway or air in your bloodstream, and both of those things can be fatal. What we realized we could do is maybe we could start to build multivascular architecture that could approximate some of the functions that we see in the human lung, and in that way start to understand this link between structure and function in the human lung and use this perhaps for other organ systems in the body as well. In the video that was posted along with along with the research, um, can you explain what people are looking at? Yeah, so in, in the first approximation of a multivascular architecture to mimic some of the functions that you see in the lung, you could think about just why don't we just have two tubes one we fill with air and one we fill with blood and put them next to each other. And that is, uh, in some ways, a way to test how you can get oxygen out of the airway, across the gel, and then into the bloodstream. But uh, two long tubes cannot recreate the function of the human lung. And that's because a very, very, very long tube that would be needed to have the surface area of the human lung, it has way too much friction uh, as you go along the length to be able to get total functionality uh, of that. So we next looked, could we make a more complicated architecture than just two tubes? And we really tried to mimic a lot of what we see in artist renditions of the human lung and in some of the anatomical structures that we observed from histology of the lung. So this includes, number one, uh, we needed to maintain the proximity of the airway to the bloodstream. Number two, we wanted to have branching of the blood vessel structure because that really is what allows for a rapid increase in surface area with minimal uh, drag components to the blood that would slow it down in terms of its flow rate. We also wanted to have this air sac. And the air sac that we observe in the human lung, it has these very inter interesting concave and convex regions of the airway. So if you think about a bubble, a bubble that's a sphere, it's going to be considered a convex sphere. But in our airways, we have these concave and convex regions. We also wanted to make it in this soft hydrogel that we can encapsulate human cells in that has this, these very elastic properties that when you inflate them with human air pressures, uh, pressures that are seen in the lung, um, around five PSI or so, uh, that will cause stretching of the airway. And that airway stretching can impinge on the blood flow that's going around that airway. What we observed here is that under cyclic ventilation, so we're inflating and, and venting the airway, we're able to see compression of the blood vessels near some of these concave regions of the airway. 
And this was very exciting to us because it suggested a way that blood could get more efficiently oxygenated in these types of architectures because we're seeing that it's boosting the mixing of the blood in the vessels that we have in sheathing this airway. It, it is rather interesting because like when you look at the look at the video and as it does like expand and contract and you do see that that kind of outer layer with um you know, resembling the the blood flow, etc. Like you do see movement in it, which I guess is what you're what you're talking about is like the movement of and, and oxygenation of those um, of those blood cells. That's right, and it was really funny because the first time we did this experiment, we saw some regions of the blood vessels getting compressed. And we thought it was a bad print. We thought actually we messed up on the 3D printing or something failed in in the print process. But it turned out to be extremely reproducible. And every gel that we made, that we perfused, we were getting compression in the same architectural regions. And that's when we realized it was correlated to these concave regions of the airway. This was really an empirical discovery that we made just by uh, understanding a little bit more about... um, just by mimicking a bit more of that architectural complexity that we see in the human lung. And that has been described for a very long time, uh, hundreds of years, but really we're, we're really trying to understand it from a fundamental engineering standpoint. How does each region of this airway and, and each of these branches, how do they all uh, combine to help boost the efficiency of oxygenation? Just for perspective, the, what you created was really small like (laughs) less than uh like a a us uh penny right that's right so this uh lung mimicking air sac is smaller than a us penny but it's actually still 10 times too big so the actual uh capillaries that are lining uh this ensheathing vasculature around the alveolar structures in the lung are more in the order of about 10 to 30 microns in diameter. Ours are about 300 microns in diameter. And so uh, although the fluid dynamics are quite scalable, uh, we really were not at the length scale that we see in the body. Um, We also think we're going to need billions of air sacs like this to be able to replicate a lot of the function that we see in the human lung. So we think it'll be a little while before we can do that with a 3D printer. But what we're doing now is understanding these fundamental unit cells of living tissue. So if we can make a very efficient lung mimicking air sac, then if you multiply that by a few billion, you're going to have a very efficient 3D printed overall architecture that can mimic a lot of that real function of the human lung. Thanks to Jordan Miller from Rice University for talking me through his research for this episode. It's incredibly complex, but if you're interested in learning more, we'll share a link to the research findings in our show notes. And if you're interested in the bioprinting technique that they were using to create these vascular networks, they've open-sourced Slate, so you can use this process to print your own hydrogel samples. That's it for another episode of Moonshot. This episode was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson, with research by our intern, Maddie Chuasta. Andrew Millist designed our amazing artwork, and Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme track. 
We're also launching a brand new service at Lawson Media. It's a daily email newsletter about the future, and it's called Moonshot Daily. If you want to get access to the newsletter and also get an ad-free feed of Moonshot, just head across to moonshotdaily.com. Every 600 subscribers to the newsletter will allow us to hire a brand new journalist to create great Moonshot content. So if you want access to our Moonshot Daily newsletter and also an ad-free feed of Moonshot, just head across to moonshotdaily.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. See you next time.